Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to the book of Judges. It is the seventh book, I believe, if I'm, if I'm doing my math correct. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry, it will be on the screen. But I want you to, as you're going there, to imagine something real quick with me. Imagine that America is in a major war and we lost. It's really something our country, since its inception, has never really, uh, never really experienced. I know that Pastor Wayne, who was one of my best friends, and he was a Vietnam War veteran, he used to say that we lost the war in Vietnam, but I'm not so sure that's the best way to characterize it. We may have given up or pulled out or abandoned the mission, but to experience a loss in war where we have an occupying force in our country. A lot of countries around the world have experienced this. In fact, uh, Ukraine is experiencing this right now as a portion of their country is being occupied. And so just imagine for a moment that we have suffered a similar situation. And, and as a consequence, not only do we have an occupying force in America, but that occupying force doesn't really care about our feelings. All of a sudden, you hear a knock at the door. It's a familiar knock. It's not the gentle greeting knock. It's the knock of we're here and we mean business. You see well-dressed men and women from the conquering countries show up with armed guards and they start rifling through your house, taking anything they want. Now this has been happening for seven years and you're sick of it. Out the door, you see them taking away your tri-tip steaks. You see them taking away your fresh fruit and your fresh vegetables and your unopened bag of Cheetos. And you say, oh God, please don't let them take my Cheetos. Please God. They can take the vegetables, but not the Cheetos. <laughs> They've taken your food, your clothes, your tools, your gold, your knives, maybe even your wives. It's life under the occupation. You could try to fight back, but the resistance movement hasn't really gone anywhere, and what good is your little pistol against drones and tanks and missiles? This is a lot like the world of ancient Israel. Sometime after the famous exodus from Egypt, Joshua, the great general, is dead. And a group called the Midianites have been raiding and oppressing the people of God and the people of God kind of held out for seven years until finally they get this great idea, why don't we pray to the Lord? And I think that's a lot like many of us, you know. We'll go through every option that we can control, everything that we can do. I did this and I did this and I did this and I did this. It all didn't work. I might as well try prayer. If we actually flipped those, I wonder if we could spare ourselves seven years of grind if we just prayed at the outset. Of course, I'm sure that's what they're thinking now as well. God heard their prayer and he called a man named Gideon to be their deliverer. The story kind of shows that sometimes God is just waiting for us to pray. 
because he wants to answer our prayers in a mighty way. Last week, we kind of talked about the buildup, right? They had fallen away from God, and there was prophets, and there was Gideon, and Gideon was called a mighty warrior. He didn't feel like a mighty warrior and all that stuff. Last week, we kind of had the buildup. If you're not sure what that was, go ahead and watch last week or listen to, walk, uh, listen to last week. But the essential buildup is this. Instead of God himself just, you know, doing a Sodom and Gomorrah on the Midianites, he calls a man named Gideon who is going to be the answer and the deliverer for the people of Israel. God is going to partner with this man. Now, this man particularly has low self-esteem. He doesn't feel like a mighty warrior. He's the youngest in his tribe, the least in his clan. He's got all, his resume does not spell deliverer, right? He doesn't look tough. He doesn't act tough. But there is one thing he has. From what we can tell, he's pretty devoted to God. See, in the, in the passing years, uh, they, the Israelites have joined this fertility cult, which is very immoral, very licentious. Uh, you know, it takes parting to a whole new level when you add religion to it. And, and this is kind of the way the culture has gone. Even Gideon's own father has gone this way. But we, get, we kind of get the sense that Gideon has not. Gideon has is, is not gone the way of the cults, but he's a little upset with God too. He's kind of saying, God, where have you been for seven years? God doesn't really answer him, but he says, Gideon, am I not sending you? Now, here, I, I want something to really sink in. Because I'm going to give you the rest of the story this Sunday. But here is something that if you remember nothing else, remember this. The moment, the moment that Gideon believed God and trusted in him, the story is over. The story is over. There's no worry. There's no this might happen or that might happen. Or there's no, oh, I might be left to the hands of fate. There is none of that. The moment that Gideon believed, trusted, and began to follow God's plan, God just let the timeline play out. But at that moment, the people of Israel were freed. They were rescued. Now it was just going to take a little bit of mechanics to get, to get there. But at that moment, and the reason why I highlight that is for some of us, we're wondering when our moment is going to be, and I want to encourage you, the moment where you just stop, like I just said a few moments ago, stop, take some self-inventory, feel a little bit of the bruising, and then say, God, I believe you, I trust you, I'm going to follow you, lead me in what you want me to do. And at that moment, no matter what the timeline or how long it takes, the story is over. The victory is there, Amen. So if you have a discussion sheet this morning, you can go ahead and take it and then flip it over, and we're going to go right into our first point. And our first point is this. Private faithfulness precedes public victory. Private faithfulness precedes public victory. Right on the heels of God telling Gideon he's a mighty warrior, right on the heels of Gideon, Gideon offering an offering to God, and God burns it up miraculously, right on the heels of all this amazing stuff, God calls Gideon to do something which must have seemed impossible. It's like Luke Skywalker facing his father, Darth Vader. I mean, it's, it's this big. It's a big, it's a huge ask by God. 
But God essentially says, Gideon, before we deliver Israel, before you take one step toward the Midianites, you've got to do some cleanup in your own backyard. Gideon, you've got to go take on dad. This is a huge ask. Because Gideon's father is obviously a tribal chief of the, of the Abirazites. Gideon knows his place and everything. And if he goes against dad, he may end up dead before he can even become the deliverer. This is a big ask by God. Go against your dad. Take out his cult religion. So it says, beginning in verse 25, the same night the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old. A seven-year-old bull is a bull that you have been patiently fattening up for a great big party. And Gideon's father was fattening up this bull so he could feed all the families that were under his influence some nice tri-tip steaks as they worshipped the fertility cult gods. So God says, that bowl, the bowl that was meant for them, take that one and tear down your father's altar to Baal, that was the name of the god, Baal, and cut down the Asherah pole, that was the female, the goddess. So you got Baal, who was the male god, Asherah, who was the female goddess, and he says, tear them down and then build a proper kind of altar uh, that's prescribed in the Bible to the Lord your God on the top of its height. Using the wood from the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the bull as a burnt offering, not before Baal and Asherah, but before the Lord. Now here's the interesting thing. Before Gideon could be used publicly, he had to first clean up his own backyard. He must put his house in order first. For some of you who yearn for that, man, I wish I could have that experience once where God uses me powerfully. One of the first questions I would ask is, how does your own backyard look? How does your own backyard look? What's being done in private? One time, I remember, we had, uh, when, we were, when we were youth pastors up in Tacoma, we had this guy who wanted to be a worship leader, and he was good. He was a great musician, great singer, and I kept asking him about his private life. He never wanted to go there. Like, hey, do you worship at your house? Do you, do you want to do worship in the park? Do you want to do? No, no, no. Finally, I come to realize he never did any worship. In fact, what he did outside of church really disqualified him from being a worship pastor, and I remember I was grieving so much because he was such a good singer, and he played guitar so well, and I'm like, God, come on, please. But no, I knew that that lack of private faithfulness would never grant him public victory. In fact, I was probably just setting him on a pedestal for the devil to pick him off, you know what I'm saying? And so there's something about putting your house in order first. Gideon's family was breaking the first and second commandments in public for the whole world to see. They had made idols to Baal and Asherah on their property. So the first assignment from God is to take dad's seven-year bull, tear down the idols, and sacrifice them using the wood from the destroyed idol. Talk about insult to injury. Before God can be used you mightily, 
He must be magnified in your own life, in private, where no one sees. For private worship prepares us for public power. God was going to save Israel, but not while they were taking part in a cult. Now, what was the risk? In verse 30, it says that the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son, he must die. All right? Don't mess with a man's pleasure. They'll kill you over it. Okay? Bring out your son, he must die. There isn't, hey, let's talk to Gideon. Hey, maybe there is a misunderstanding. Hey, maybe he couldn't find wood. Or hey, No, bring him out, he must die. And here is the beauty of this story. Gideon's stand brings a deep conviction to his father. Perhaps Gideon's father was closer to the generation of Joshua who had conquered the promised land in the power of the Holy Spirit. But something about Gideon's father, Joash, he awakens to the truth and he stood up to the men and in verse 31 he said, would you plead Baal's case for him? If he is a God, let him plead his own case. If Baal's so bad, let him get Gideon. If Asherah is so real, let her kill him. We're going to step back. If our gods are real, then my son will be dead tonight. Here's the problem. There were no power in those idols. Only the power to sin. Gideon is doing just fine. In fact, Gideon is doing better than he ever has because now he has taken this private stand. And what does it say? It says, the spirit of the Lord fills him and envelops him. So much that while a year earlier, not one Israelite man had the guts to go against the Midianite raiders who were taking their goods, taking their crops, taking their girls, taking everything. Now 32,000 come out of the woodwork to follow Gideon. Why? Because when a man has been with God, you see it and you feel it and you want some of it. You begin to believe in it. And they took one look at Gideon. They said, man, Gideon's got the Holy Spirit. Let's follow this guy. Let's see what happens. 32,000 of them. What they didn't realize is that the Midians had about 150,000, or maybe they did realize it. But here they are, and they're going to take their stand with Gideon. I remember <laughs> about 25 years ago when I was working in real estate. Uh, when you work in real estate, at least when I did, maybe, I don't know if it's still the same, I assume it is. The whole point of real estate is to look better than the other person, Right? There's a thousand agents in a city you can list your home with. You gotta, you're going to list the one that looks a cut above the rest. You know, maybe you know them. That's one thing. But so I remember the broker was always pushing me because I was younger at the time. You know, you've got to look good. Hey, all these old agents, they don't know how to use a computer. You get out there. You use a computer. You use your digital photo. You have to stand out and look a cut above the rest. That was the whole point. Put yourself first and look better than the other guy. And these were her agents. I remember when I had transitioned from that job to work at my first job at the church. After about a week, my pastor caught that in me. He said, you're a competitor. 
you're a look at me kind of guy. You, you're, a, you're a spotlight kind of guy. And you think that's what it's going to take to advance in the church because that's what was taught to you as you worked in the world. And I'm sitting here like, oh, no, he's going to fire me after one week. And he said, and this is all he said. And then he walked away. I hate when profound speakers say one sentence and walk away. You know why? Because then you've got to think about it and figure it out. <laughs> this is what he said to me. He said, Tom, for this to work, God needs to be first. For this to work, God needs to be first. And as he walked away, I'm thinking, oh, man, I don't know if I'll ever understand that. I don't know if I'll ever get to that point because it's just not natural. And yet over time, with his counsel and guidance, I began to see that what he was teaching me was exactly what God was teaching Gideon. Gideon, for this to work, I need to be first. Cut down those idols. Take your stand. Amen? Number two, there's no shame in seeking confirmation. If this were a movie, by the time you get to verse 33, you'd hear the ominous music coming in. Ding, 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 ding. It says that the Midianites were just getting ready for their annual raid. The reports came in and said, they're coming. Gideon, instead of cringing in a cave, rallies 32,000 men. Now Gideon had had an encounter with God. Gideon took his stand and been obedient and cleaned up shop at home. The Holy Spirit had now empowered him, but Gideon still struggled with doubts. Amen. Thank you, Gideon. Thank you that even though you can have an amazing encounter with God, you can follow God and obey God, you can be filled with the Holy Spirit, you're still going to have moments where you struggle with doubts. You are, we are, he did. So Gideon is looking at his reflection in the mirror, and once again he's getting discouraged. Now God is invisible, so he's patient with us, knows this. In verse 36, Gideon said to God, God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised. Now, many of you may think, boy, he's testing God here. This isn't good. No, no, listen. He says, I'm going to place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. And if you create dew just on the fleece, but the rest of the ground is dry, I'll know that that was really you calling me to do that and not just the pizza that I ate the other night. And so, God allows it. He puts it down. God prevents the dew from any of the, dry, of the ground, and he saturates the fleece so much that when Gideon rings it out, there's a whole bucket full of water that comes out. This isn't just dew. It's as if God threw it in the ocean and put it back. Here's the interesting thing. That wasn't enough for Gideon. He actually asks for a second sign. He says, God, this time I'm going to lay the fleece down, but I want all the ground to be wet and the fleece to be dry. And God accommodates him again. Now all the ground is wet and the fleece is dry. 
So God is really showing by supernatural miracle. Gideon, I've honored this. You called this sign. Now let's get going. Now some of you may say, how come God allows Gideon to ask for a sign? But when you read like in the Gospels and in the New Testament, when other people ask for a sign, they're really rebuked by the Bible for asking. Because there's a very huge difference. Gideon believed in God. Gideon believed God existed. He just wanted to clarify that God was actually calling him to what he was calling him to. The people who confronted Jesus, the Pharisees, they didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't believe that God was his father. So they were saying, Jesus, if you perform for us, we'll believe in you. If you can do some spiritual backflips, we'll believe in you. If you can dazzle us with some miracles, we'll believe in you. The biggest difference between Gideon and the Pharisees was Gideon had belief. He just wanted confirmation. The Pharisees didn't have belief, so they wanted a performance from God. Do something, and then I'll believe in you. There's no shame in asking for confirmation, but to have a relationship with God, we must approach Him through faith. Amen? Number three, success comes through active faith, not passive doubt. Gideon's ready to rumble. But God has other plans. In Judges 7, 2, the Lord says to Gideon, you have too many people for me to hand the Midianites over to you or else Israel might brag, I did it myself. So, whoa, is that me? Oh, it's a, <laughs> I was gonna say, wish my voice sounded like that. <laughs> so God essentially is like, even though you only have 32,000 and the Midianites have 150,000, Gideon, that's still too much. So Gideon goes and says, okay, every man who is scared to fight, you can leave. And to Gideon's amazement, 22,000 men are scared and they go home. Well, Gideon's got 10,000. Yeah, it may not be a lot, but still more than he can count in one second. Then God says, you know, Gideon, it's still too much. So take them down by the river, and those who drink like a dog, shoving their face into the river and licking it up, send them home. But those, you know, you know the kind of men who wash their hands after work or after the bathroom, whatever, you know, the, the more civilized types. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Those who take, you know, water and drink it from their hands like that, keep them. Wouldn't you know it, 9,700 men got down and shoved their face in the river and only 300 drank it by cupping the water in their hands. So now Gideon's scratching his head. He sends 9,700 men home. He is left with 300 and all he has is trumpets, jars, and something else I forget at the moment. With 300 men Gideon is about to face 150,000. Now, God purposely created this impossible situation so that they would know who to depend on. God wanted to make it very clear. Gideon, you're going to win this war by active faith, not passive doubts. D.L. Moody, a pastor from Chicago, once said, 
give me ten men who fear nothing but sin and love nothing but God and we will change the world. Gideon's about to do that with 300. Which leaves me at number four. We'll close with this. God wants to give you a victory that only he can give. In one of the strangest battles in biblical history, Gideon goes out with trumpets, torches, and jars, all 300 of them. But when it was over, 120,000 Midianites had turned on each other and killed each other. And the rest of the Midian army fled. It was over. God had answered Israel's prayers. And all they did was light torches, blow trumpets, and bang jars. And down below, they see 120,000 slaughter each other. And the other 30,000 run in fear because the Lord had whispered in their ears, Gideon is coming. Gideon is coming. They didn't realize Gideon only had 300 men with jars and torches. But you'd be amazed what a little bit of propaganda in your heart can do, right? The other 30,000 flee. And all of a sudden, for the first time in seven years, it's all over. I want you to really read this final point because this is very hard for us. God wants to give you a victory that only He can give. As I look back on my life, I think there's a lot of victories, maybe too many victories, I manufactured on my own, trying to use my own talents, my own strengths. When I look bad back, it's hard to see where God was because I was all over it. But there have been a handful, enough for me to look back and say, man, if God didn't do this, it would have never happened. Man, if God wasn't there for me, this would have never come through. My life would be totally different if God didn't come through at this point. And there are situations and points where God wants to give that to us as a gift. One time there was a man who desperately needed a job. He had gotten fired from his job, and it was his fault that he got fired from his job. And I remember praying, and I remember praying, struggling to have faith to pray for this guy's job because he had so blown it on his other one. I'm thinking, I just don't know how that's going to happen. But I still prayed and prayed and prayed. We got on our knees, and, and I said, hey, man, call me if things don't work out, you know. We can help you because I don't want help from the church. Oh, man, I can work. I'm like, I know, and I want that for you too, but this was a big screw-up. He calls me. Pastor, you'll never believe what happened. On the day I needed the job, on the day I needed the paycheck, and on the day that everything needed to happen, God came through and gave me a job. I got a phone call from a place I wasn't even looking for. And he came and he said, I'm all messed up because I know I screwed up on my other job. Why did God give me this? I said, you know what? Because God loves his children. God's a God of grace. He's not like we are where we punish people for mistakes they make the rest of their life. You made a mistake, you blew it, you got fired. God's saying, hey, I'm giving you another shot to be the man you want to be, provide for your family. And he's just all in tears. He's like, I love God more now than ever. Because sometimes God wants to give you a victory that only he can give. William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, God called him to 
work with the poor and the destitute in the slums of London. William Booth does a Gideon on God. He says, you know what, God? If you take care of me miraculously, then I'll take care of other people miraculously. But until I experience that in my own life, I can't do it. Because he was struggling financially. I, I won't bore you with the whole story, but for eight months, miraculously, people brought him food. Strangers who didn't know, who came out of the woodwork and said, God had me drop off this bag of groceries for you. Now, how many of you, it would take eight months? Okay, I'm sorry. For me, like eight days. And I'd be like, okay, God, <laughs> okay, miraculous food for eight, eight months. And when, he, <laughs> and when he started the Salvation Army, it has revolutionized the mercy and hospitality wing of the church. The percentage of Americans who still believe in divine miracles in 2022 stands at 82%. So we are a people who believe. It's just so hard for us to give up control. And I ask you this morning, give up some of that control so that God can give you a victory that only He can give. My last story comes from the Bible College. Uh, I was able to teach at Summit Bible College. And uh, there was a student I had, and she told me a, a very interesting story. She was in a marriage that went south, and so she got divorced. And she was lonely and suffering, struggling. And finally, after months or years of being mad at God over the divorce, she finally turned to God and prayed for healing over the divorce. And she said, God, I, I know this is selfish, but I want a husband. I want a husband. So she kept praying that every night, every night. And one night she said, I felt like this voice came into my thoughts and said, Nicole, I'm going to give you a new man. Boy, that's like music to her ears. She said, it was a few months, but I met a man, a Christian man, who I really began to develop feelings for. I liked him. He seemed like he'd be a good friend. I was attracted to him, and I really wanted to get to know him more, see if maybe this was the guy. She said, after a few minutes of meeting him, she said, I just knew, I felt it in my spirit. This is the man that I'm going to marry. And what was his name? Well, his last name was Newman. She went home that night. And just cried. God had given her the new man. By your heads, pray with me. Worship team, come on forward. There is a victory for you out there that only God can give. Sometimes we got to empty our hands empty our pride, empty whatever it is we're holding on to, to experience it. So this morning as we close, I want you to ask yourself, what is the victory that only God can give me? What seems impossible in your world? Better marriage, better relationship with kids, 
better finances, better health, more joy, less depression, less anxiety. Some people live with a low level of anxiety and depression all their life. They don't even know who they'd be without it. Almost becomes a familiar, torturous friend. But God still wants to give you a victory that only He can give. So go ahead and put your hands over your hearts with me this morning. For those of you who don't know Christ, that's where it all begins. That's why Gideon had to tear down the idols first. He had to restore a relationship with God. So for you this morning, I invite you. Get born again. Restore your relationship with God. Find the forgiveness for your sins that He offers. Be filled with His Holy Spirit. For those of you who know the Lord who would consider yourself believers, ask yourself the deep question. Do I allow God to give me the victories only He can give? Or do I control it all? And if it's not under my control, I don't pursue it. This morning God's saying, let me give you the victory only I can give. It's a memory you'll never forget. And a fleece that will speak to you the rest of your life. Let's praise together. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I confess I have sins that I need forgiveness for from here to my dying breath. But Lord, I commit to follow you and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. <laughs> and God, I ask, grant me the victory that only you can give in Jesus' name. Amen.